Welcome back to The Last Thing I Saw. My name is Nicholas Rapold, and I'm an editor and a writer. This episode, we're going to hear from a far-flung correspondent, at least from the cave where I'm currently sitting, and that is critic and programmer Ella Bittencourt, who is based in Brazil. I've worked with Ella on a number of articles and interviews relating to Brazilian cinema, and her most recent project is programming for the Venice Days section during the Venice Film Festival. Our subject for the episode is documentary, ranging from a new Iranian film about a women's prison, Sunless Shadows, to an early feature by Errol Morris, Vernon, Florida. We also discussed Agnes Varda's groundbreaking debut feature, La Pointe Courte, a fascinating film about visual culture and personal perceptions, The Viewing Booth, and the film Again, Once Again by Argentine author Ramana Paula. Also mentioned are the instant barroom classic Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets, and the landmark work of director Paolo Rocha. Let's go to the conversation. Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. This is Nick Crippold. I'm talking about movies that others have seen and that I have seen. Sometimes not the same movies, sometimes the same movies. And our delightful, wonderful person today, I'm very pleased to introduce... (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm like chuckling here privately. Yes. Yeah, I know. Ahead. I like to lay it on thick, don't I? But, uh, <laughs> so without further ado, um, welcome Ella Bittencourt. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me on the show or on the podcast, Nick. <laughs> yes. Thanks for um, coming on. Um, what, are you, what are you up to these days? Well, mostly at home. Um, I am in Sao Paulo. We have come out of a lockdown, but... As in all cities coming out of a lockdown, it's unrolling stages. It's pretty shaky. The daily death rates are extremely high. And um, the COVID statistics kind of quieted down in, in Sao Paulo Center, but it, it's still pretty much raging throughout the country. And obviously with everyone keeping our eyes on the Amazon and, and what's happening there and so yeah, mostly on lockdown, mostly in front of my projector, mostly streaming. I did work for Venice Days, which was fabulous. That was the highlight pretty much of my day. Yeah. Yeah. Congrats on that. I saw that was was announced. uh, Yeah, no, it's a beautiful program for, you know, for Jonathan D'Agliautori for Venice Days. Yeah. Um, And you also obviously have a um, body of work as a critic as well. And I, I believe you wrote something recently for a Criterion release. Oh, yes. Yes, I did. It was actually, it was an essay that I was working on during and shortly after Berlinale, but um, the, it was a special, it's a special edition DVD of Selling Shiyama's Portrait of a Lady on Fire, mm. which is one of the, the beloved films for me of Khan. I mean, it's just one of those films that left me absolutely breathless. And I was so happy to be able to do that and to, you know, look at Shema's filmography and to talk about love in this film and, and this gorgeously made film. And it came out with an interview with, with Shyama, also interview with the painter who was involved in preparing all those canvases for the film, interviews with the actresses. I mean, yet gotten my hands of like the physical box set uh, but it's a gorgeous um, yeah it has gorgeous art and yeah I was so happy to do that I mean that was a blast yeah a, a wonderful film I, I look forward to, to reading that it's it's I mean it's it is a terrible time I, I can only read about it from afar in some respects I can imagine part of it just because we you know things are awful in parts of the uh, U.S. as, as yeah. well yeah 
I mean, I think I hear the worry is really that the situation in the in the film industry and the movie industry was getting very shaky before COVID. Mm. It was getting very shaky in terms of um, you know the there's just the government having no interest in, in promoting culture whatsoever. And in fact, having a very engaged interest in freezing some of the funds, which did happen. I mean, a lot of the fund, you know, the the primary funds, which all the filmmakers here use, I mean, those funds are frozen. And so that just created an enormous chaos, you know, which is so stunning because I came directly from Berlinale, which where there were like 20 Brazilian films, (laughs) which is incredible. I mean, and and Khan was also so rich with Bakurao and with Karim Mainuz's film, The Invisible uh, Life of Yuridiso Guzman. And then there were other Brazilian films in Cannes. So it felt like it was such an incredibly rich year. And then there had been, you know, Rotterdam had a whole program of black Brazilian filmmakers. So it was just so rich. And to go from there to yeah. this freeze where... You know, the Cinemateca lost its contract. I mean, the government canceled the contract. So, I mean, the workers have not been paid at all this year. And now, I mean, it's the largest film archive in Latin America, and it's not being maintained. I mean, it requires an entire system. There are days when apparently electricity is lacking. They're just, I mean, they fear that it will essentially burn down. And I mean, they have suffered a flood and a fire already in the past. When some of the archive was lost, I mean, it's just so dramatic. And obviously, the context is so much larger. There's so much death. There's so much trauma. But it's just also, I think Brazilians are feeling like the heritage is just going up in smoke. At their historical museums, it has already happened. And uh, anyway, so when is sorry. when is the election? I feel like every time we do our podcast, it's like a big downer. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll we'll work our way up to the top again. <laughs> in in that sense, there's no immediate drama on the horizon um, because the election, you know, unlike the U.S., isn't going to happen that soon. We still have a few years ahead of us. We're just wow, getting okay. into this. Yeah. Wow. Well, solidarity. Solidarity, yeah. And, you know, vice versa with the U.S. Because I'm I'm reading, (laughs) you know, I I read the New York Times news. That's my first blast of, you know, of doomsday in the morning. (laughs) And then I read the Brazilian news. Yeah. Well, let's escape to the wonderful world of of cinema. Although these aren't movies that aren't escapist per se. It's just that they actually go very deeply into what matters uh, in life, Uh, you know, the the, the ones you chose in very different ways. So I really liked um, the mix of of movies. Yeah, I just thought, and I also felt like it would be nice to start off and to talk about documentaries, you know, I Mm -hmm. feel like... I mean, I certainly am I'm blessed that within the various kind of consulting circuits, I end up watching a good deal of documentaries, but sometimes I catch myself, you know, not seeking them out enough. I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting dilemma because I love documentary and I love writing about documentaries. But outside of the festivals, I find some kind of a, a hole. Yeah. I mean, I was talking with someone recently and realizing that I've been watching somehow more conventional narrative fiction lately um, and maybe not as much documentary. Um, It's true. Uh, I mean, that's one thing that the festival circuit is is, is good at is is feeding you a a lot of documentary, a lot of experimental fiction that, you know, draws on documentary. No, it's true. And also, I mean, I feel like when you're going to festivals, you would find these times of the year where you have these highlights and these bursts, Mm -hmm. where maybe you went to Trufals, or maybe you went to Itfa. But this first filmmaker 
Magdalos Way. I mean, I, I picked him because I saw that the Museum of the Moving Image was going to do a t- retrospective, and I saw that he previously showed at True Falls and showed at Idfa, and that was kind of, and I guess since it was on my radar, and this film that I picked, Sunless Shadows, his latest from 2019, is absolutely remarkable. Yeah, definitely. Tell us a little bit about um, Sunless Shadows. For some reason, um, I haven't talked a lot about new releases. Uh, so I'm pretty happy that one of the first new releases we're, we're talking about definitely could use the spotlight, thanks to my millions of listeners. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. No, I definitely, I do, I do want to get that word out. And it's, it's beautiful that you said that these films are not escapist. It's very true. I mean, if you told me, you know, you're going to watch a documentary that's set in Iran and this facility for, you know, specifically for young girls who have murdered their fathers or their brothers, it's not a pitch that pops into your mind of like, oh, that's my Saturday matinee or that's my Sunday evening movie. And yet it's a film that's so stunning and so intense and done with such generosity with these girls and solidarity with them in such a, I think, deceivingly simple format that I really hope that everyone will seek it out and, and watch it. And it's it's pretty much a cycle. I mean, they're showing four films, and I think two of them are at the girls' facilities. Two of them are dedicated to the boys' facilities. So this is definitely an area where Oskoe has gone in repeatedly and just has such an enormous report with these youngsters just these are these are kind of reformatory schools or not exactly prisons what yeah, what are they no, it's a good question i don't think that this is a prison yeah i think it's very much like a, a a reformatory school i mean you see what you see the girls doing is you see them living there you see them socializing there you see one young woman who is um it looks like she's she raises her baby there because at least in all the shots the baby is present it's a baby boy and at the same time you see them working and I don't know if they're working literally on that facility or or if they're taken to work um, and receiving visitors. Yeah. So there's a variety. I mean, I think what's so touching about it is that, you know, when I think of youth committing this kind of crime, I'm like immediately thinking true crime series. You know, I think our minds were have also been like reset with Netflix and and some of the true crime series now going to festivals. And obviously there's a lot to be said to the form. Mm -hmm. You know, there are remarkable examples of that form, but there's a certain mix of like topicality and sensationalism that pops into my mind that Oskwe absolutely moves in the opposite direction. I mean, it's such an intensely quiet film in many ways. And it's beautiful because... It's interesting because it seems like it's so, I mean, it seems like it's so seamless. I don't know how to better say it, but, um, but it just appears as though he's having, he's having these, you know, interviews with them and then observing them. But at the same time, there's such an art to what he's doing. You know, there's, he's using this very simple device where at the very early in the film, I think actually the opening um, scene of the film is this girl who's facing the camera and she's now addressing the father that she has murdered. And so these girls end up kind of sitting down and having this very mm. emotional moment. And of course, they're all, you know, they all suffered abuse in their homes. And then slowly we realize that not only are they sitting in front of the camera and, you know, and having this kind of traumatic, but I think at, at the same time kind of reparative 
moment of being able to address the fathers and sometimes with great tenderness and with great kind of emotion and almost as if speaking to a living person. And then later on in the film, we realize that that's being projected outside and there's a wall and there's a monitor and there are most often mothers sitting there who get to see Mm. this and who are kind of quietly weeping and reacting to it. It's really remarkable. I mean, so it becomes this kind of cinematic portal, you know, for their thoughts and their emotions. And it's such a simple device, but it's such an artfully done device. It's really beautiful. Is that a setup that the filmmaker made? Or is that part of the, the system somehow? That's interesting. I have not I have not been I tried to find interviews with him and I do believe that that's his idea. But I have not been able to find an interview where he specifically says that. But I, I read some other people mentioning mm. that that was his idea, that the interview and this the, his ability to build that kind of trust with, you know, with these teens or these young people has always been there. I mean, I watched a little bit of, of one of the other films and it's you certainly feel it as well. But that this kind of specific device is how he's kind mm-hmm. of advanced the cinematic art of, of, of the interview and of kind of being to able to Engage and really giving them, I mean, because now it's interesting, I mean, also what it does with the camera, right? Because the camera now no longer picks shots or moves around the room or chooses what it's going to focus. I mean, it has this one mm. singular focus and it's the face of this girl who's addressing mm. her father that she was emotionally and physically abused and pushed to murder. And it's, it's really incredible. Yeah, it's remarkable. It sounds like a way of bringing people together. I mean, that sounds like a corny thing to say, but literally connecting to people. No, absolutely. And then creating this portal and then, you know, so generously reaches us. And at the same time, so this is almost, um, this particular device, this moment, this is a refrain. He does it with various girls when they will all, not all, but a few, quite a few of them will sit down and, and have this moment. He will also talk to them one-on-one inside of the facility. At one point, he also talks mm-hmm. to the mothers. And it's interesting because when you hear the mothers, I mean, there's one mother who has been put on death row, for example. And it, well, the reason why she's not being released is because her sons will not pardon her. So, I mean, there's also slowly and kind of beautifully from this kind of micro lens uh, of the of, of the girls where we're seeing glimpses of this mm. bigger system that's kind of profoundly holding these women accountable to the law, but also kind of in this very brutal, direct manner, holding them accountable towards men. I mean, that's, you definitely feel that very much throughout, you know, this discussion between these girls and the women and then the men who are in charge um, pretty much of their destinies, you know, as a system, but also in this very individual way. I mean, that's super intense in the film. The intention of the system is not to make it does not seem to be to make uh, these these women and girls feel better. It, it seems clearly that it's still a matter of kowtowing to, as you said, making them accountable to to the men in the situation. Yeah, and I think you feel it with the mothers more obviously because they are the adults, and so they they are treated much more harshly. Um, there's a moment when the girls leave the facility and then they this home and then they go to visit. Uh, the mothers and some of the mothers have some hope of possibly coming out of prison one day but there's clearly one mother who's on death row and has very little hope but I mean I 
I think maybe, I, I don't know. I mean, the reformatory, in the way some of the girls are studying. So you see also how this microcosm, like it just, mm. this world keeps on opening up. You know, you see them at play, you see them nursing or playing with a baby and uh, you see them working. Some of them are studying and taking exams and accounting. And so there is a sense, and there is one moment when there is a girl who comes from outside who visits them because she's so attached to them. And in fact, she says, you know what? I feel much more comfortable mm. here. Here actually is much more interesting. And the world outside is so dire, which is not unlike what you hear about the prison system and how difficult it is to readjust the sense of inside and outside. I think it's also about these girls' intense solidarity with each other and camaraderie that comes so strongly. And that's what makes this film also i don't know like a real embracing experience you know i just you just feel like the, the camera just really kind of wants to hold them and, and give them the space to yeah yeah to be themselves this makes me uh think a little bit of uh, kim longinato mm. you know that movie divorce iranian style um, from the late I 90s. I did not see that. Can you talk about it? I actually didn't see it. Um, it's been a little while since I, I've seen it, but I, I, as I recall, she follows uh, women who are trying to obtain divorces, separations from their husbands through the legal system, which is definitely not set up for women to do that. Um, mm-hmm. And it it's a great kind of a prime Longinato movie where she, she's just right there along with people uh, with women as, as they're kind of trying to push something through. It's really one of one of the highlights of her career, I, I think. See, this is a time, this is a moment when you wish that there were a platform that's like dedicated to streaming, to straight up streaming docs, because there's just so much yeah. Yeah. that one would love to see that obviously, I mean, that's the other thing that there's just so much of cinema that now from the seventies and eighties and nineties now that, you know, all of our local video stores are long gone. I mean, where are we to find any of this? Oh yeah, this this is this is something I always hope doesn't come up in a conversation because I'll happily go on for right. for an hour about video stores and how maybe they weren't so you know dowdy and old fashioned after all, and maybe you really can't find very basic titles. I mean, I was just you know totally another world of movies, but I was working my way through some Academy Award winners in in the 70s. And I was kind of amazed that they were just some movies that you just can't find anywhere or you can't find anywhere unless you want to quote unquote buy them online. Always a bit of a dicey thing since things you can buy online can actually disappear, etc. But anyway, yeah, there's it, there's definitely a need to bring a spotlight. So it's good that Momi is uh, showing sunless uh, shadows. Um, we also talked uh, when we were prepping a little about a movie that this reminds me just in terms of the innovation of the technique of speaking to camera we could just mention the viewing booth quickly sure ryan's flex and drive gs i thought of that you you've interviewed him do you want to oh yeah start sure off, yeah? yeah well so basically i mean this is a different uh a different technique different um, everything but just in terms of using an address to camera, talking to camera like uh, in, in a different way. What Alexandrovich did is set up a, a room at a university where he would bring in people to watch clips, um, viral clips of Israeli-Palestinian conflict-related things, um, You know, whether these are raids by the IDF um, or other things that just rapidly spread like wildfire on the internet. And just, you know, 
elicit their reactions and see what they have to say about, about them. And basically that goes on for just a few minutes because most of the movie is one person that he chooses to watch clips and to comment because not because she thinks like he does, but because she is positioned kind of an interesting place on on the spectrum in terms of not to make it like one side or the other, but uh, definitely seems sympathetic to Israeli side, um, but also is watching the clips with uh, an open mind about things going on that might not be uh, okay. And it's interesting to watch her react. And the way he shoots it is he's showing her the clips and then the camera is staring head on. So you're just seeing her reaction. You know, it's kind of, it's like a one-way mirror uh, effect in a way um, where mm-hmm. you see her as she's watching these clips and as she's talking about them. It's pretty amazing to get that kind of unfiltered reaction. And that's why she's a good subject as well, because she is pretty un- unfiltered and thoughtful and in a way feels like someone you could relate to in the sense that, yes, we all have particular biases that we're not aware of when we're watching things and commenting on them. Um, so whether you d- agree with her or not, um, it's it's a pretty illuminating thing. So it just goes to show that talking to camera is still pretty strong <laughs> effect. Yeah, both of their approaches are so thoughtful. No, I mean, yeah, I I, I, I thought I thought of that. I mean, one the the intensity of that the fact that we're watching this person and who is addressing us. I mean, Maya is potentially talking to her screen, but because of this device, we're, we're seeing her so directly and it's so in- captivating. And then I thought there's a there's a moment in Sandless Shadows where, you know, potentially the camera is just kind of there very quietly observing these girls and they're sitting in a circle and they're just talking amongst each other, but they kind of break this wall and they just kind of turn around to the camera Instead of saying, well, why don't you go and actually have this conversation with our families? Because they're the ones responsible. And it's kind of like very wonderful, you know, this moment of the filmmaker and us with them kind of being drawn mm-hmm. into into their circle, which I think ends up happening in a different way, but also ends up happening with Maya, uh, with this, you know, young um, college student that Alexandrovich brings in. You know, there's half of the movie where she's reacting, but then he brings her back, right? And when he brings her back, it's interesting how now they're they're, they're speaking to each other much more directly. And he, she's drawing and it becomes much more reflexive about like what he was expecting as a filmmaker mm-hmm. and kind of a little bit more of like responsibility of the filmmaker. And, uh, and she kind of starts talking about his craft and, you know, and directly about the process of making a movie so it's it's nice yeah. too that the, these are both filmmakers who that are just kind of allow for these moments to happen and, and and actively actually look for these moments to be part then of the of the movie yeah and it's it's funny thinking this is sort of an aside but thinking about those clips because in a way there are these they are these weird authorless visual artifacts i mean obviously someone shot them and sometimes they shot them with an agenda but, you know, when they surface and they, they, they are shared widely, they become just this thing. You know, you don't even know where it came from. And it's, it is kind of funny how things like that can spread and you're not even questioning how or where it was shot or any, any of that. It just becomes this, this thing with a life of its own. Um, so that makes the movie a kind of way of reintroducing a, a kind of human presence to that that process of visual culture. Sure. And the way that we are constantly consuming it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, I I guess this is this is the kind of quest that Alexander Ovid is increasingly on. I'm, I'm thinking of images in this way. Um, yeah. It's a great film. It's not screening at the moment anywhere, is it? I mean, screening as in streaming. I'm not aware, but hopefully, hopefully somewhere out there, there's a streamer service that is dying to pick up the viewing, both yet another documentary that it would be wonderful if more people could see. Now, my segue, this kind of, there's a segue, I would say, uh, between Mm -hmm. um, viewing booth and another film you want to talk about. Errol Morris, who is the director yes. of Vernon, Florida. <laughs> um, Vernon, Florida, what, you know, early feature for him, a big part of his work is that he, he uses this Interatron, he's kind of branded this way of, of shooting interviews. Um, Vernon, Florida actually... Doesn't use it. It doesn't use no, it. I no, I don't think it's so. Before then. But tell, tell, tell me about um, Vernon, Florida. Yeah. So, I mean, it was one of the, again, I just, you know, having this anxiety of, oh my God, not watching enough documentaries. I mean, I found, you know, I've always loved Errol Morris. I did, had not seen his early docs and found that this was streaming on Criterion. And um, yeah, and that he tells a wonderful, I mean, hilarious anecdote, I guess, how he had this wild idea that he was going to make a documentary about people who commit some kind of horrendous fraud where I don't, I don't, I don't even want to imagine what it involves, but you are like claiming that you accidentally lost a limb and then so that you can connect. So it must be quite gory, (laughs) but um, I guess he went to Florida and realized that there was no way that people who commit that particular type of fraud would be willing to talk to him. But then he was already in Florida and, you know, came across all kinds of folks that he really felt like he had rapport with and fell in love with. And and that's Vernon, Florida. It starts off with a turkey hunter uh, who tells fantastic stories about yep. his hobby, which is almost more than a hobby. I mean, it might even be like a full-time passion, you know, like the, the new school kind of get your passion into a program and make your passion into a program kind of. <laughs> he talks about turkey fever and has just fantastic stories about, you know, and I... And I looked at him and he looked at me. I mean, all those like <laughs> turkey stories. And then he double gobbled. And then he double gobbled. And then he was a gobbling. <laughs> and he was a gobbling. And then and then here he is. And then it's he's got this beautiful, this gorgeous pink trailer that he sits in his, you know, his army camouflage gear in front of this pink trailer. And then there are all these um, turkey feet that he collects from all the poor, all the poor gobblers. There's an elderly gentleman who also um, in his backyard or on his land keeps all kinds of random wild animals. So there's a possum, there's a turkey. Uh, and there's another gentleman who I guess via, um, I don't know, like order magazines or maybe television because this is pre-internet, collects all kinds of gems, hmm. gemstones that he's not quite sure that they are quite a genuine article. But what's wonderful uh, about all of them is that they're just such natural storytellers. I mean, they're all just absolutely wonderful raconteurs. And Morris, I think it's very clear that he delights in their presence. And so we delight in their presence and in their particular turn of phrase. There's something quite simple about the entire setup. It reminds you, I mean, obviously that, that sometimes the subject of, of the documentary kind of makes the documentary. I mean, there's just kind of this moment of serendipity. 
and yeah. the whole thing. And it just made me think. And you know, and, and you and you'll hear documentary filmmakers, particularly diehard documentary filmmakers, where you know those documentary filmmakers that they say, oh, I would never make a fiction, I wouldn't even consider. And they always say, you know what's so great? Because you couldn't make it up. I mean, if you try even if you tried, you couldn't make it up. And there's a sense of, yeah, the sense of serendipity in our real life of this wonder you know i thought of that all the time watching this film because um, i've been reading the fiction of karen russell i mean i think a young writer i think she's in her 30s um and uh she was nominated for i think it was the national book award at one point anyway but but a lot of her stories are set in florida so that's why i thought of her and they often have this kind of magical realist twist you, um, where, you know, there are crocodiles and all kinds of wild things happening and, and werewolves. And I just kept thinking even Karen Russell couldn't make some of this stuff up. It's so good. <laughs> and, and also because she has a wonderful, as a writer, she has this very wonderful humor. And this, that's definitely what, what this documentary has as well. It's only like 50 minutes. So in, in a sense, there is something escapist about it. I mean, it's just wonderfully escapist. What I always like about that movie is that he just completely gives over to their views of, of the world and, oh, yeah. and, and the logic oh, yeah. of, the, of, of the world that they have. Totally. I mean, it, and I think that even comes out in the technique as, as a filmmaker in the sense that just at the point when another filmmaker might cut away at a kind of punchline or an easy line is sometimes exactly when he's kind of digs in and is like, okay, let's see this through. Let's just sit here yeah. and listen True. to this, to, to the end. And and the result is that you don't, they don't become just punchlines, you know? Uh, I mean, obviously there's mm-hmm. a sense of humor about the whole thing, but they're, they're more yeah. than just yeah. their oddity uh, in, in our eyes. No, and you're so right. I mean, that's the other thing that filmmakers will talk a lot about and obviously so much more with documentary, right? But your ability to listen. I mean, I think that's something that we're always training to do, hopefully, in interviews as well. But yeah, just just to know when not to cut off, just to know how much longer you actually need to stay and, and have a conversation before you hit on something that's kind of magical. Yeah. And uh, you, you said that, wait, what did you say, that, that he sticks to their, how he how far he goes with their logic. in the, On Criterion, there's a little clip where Morris talks about it. And he said that he loved them because they have they're like crazy versions of enlightenment philosophers i thought it was kind of wonderful yeah it's true <laughs> because that's what they are yeah. yeah i mean there's there are all these kind of folksy and and also i mean i say serendipity but it also has to be mentioned how wonderful the editing is on this doc you know because when it opens you only have like this establishing shot of i don't remember if it's like a road or but it's a place basically that's the first thing that we see but there's this line that you know this kind of faceless this bodiless voice that comes at you as, and says something like is this reality mm-hmm. or what is real or so it opens with this already this very philosophical touch and then leaves it while we go off on turkey hunting and all these other things and 
we start to think that maybe this is a film about waiting, how all these people are waiting for something. But then it kind of wraps around and there's a moment where the gentleman who collects gems starts talking about how he's not even sure that the diamonds are real, but in a way the waiting for them is all the more important and it gets very philosophical again. So that that kind of wrap up yeah. and knowing that you're, you're going to pick this tiny fragment of a conversation and you're going to open your film with it and then you're going to establish this down-to-earth chronology. And yeah, and, and the sense of that there's a there's a kind of a continuity to their, their philosophies. And I love what you say about waiting because it's interesting. Our perspective is that they're waiting for something, but, you know, in, in their perspective, obviously they're there. You know, I mean, a certain point, they are waiting for things, yeah. but, they, but they are they, right. they are right. doing their thing. And yeah, they're doing their thing. You're right. And I love that. And it's always been fascinating to me is how hard it has been for other filmmakers to walk on that knife's edge that Errol Morris does in, in this in this film, um, which is highlighting what's different about his subjects. Clearly, like bringing it to a point, getting deadpan amusement out of it but not, you know, just turning them into caricature or a commodified quirk. No, it's true. And there are these moments, I mean, I I watched it only once, so I feel like that that tiny fragment escaped me. But for example, the the turkey hunter all of a sudden, I mean, he has this very strange ferial moment where he's talking about electrocution. Mm-hmm. You know, like this is towards the end of the movie where this kind of, there's this kind of more folksy philosophy and we're flowing with it. But then there's this very dark, almost kind of Nietzschean moment that like out of nowhere, he's talking about, I mean, he's talking about electrocution and what it's like. It sounds like what happens to your bodily functions when you're being electrocuted. And I mean, just kind of suddenly zaps you out of nowhere. But by then you're so with the the people i mean like you said i think morris establishes i mean it gets us kind of this kind of willingness to just go with it that you just kind of absorb it and then you know and then the film takes you elsewhere and you're not even sure what that moment was but there it is i mean it's there and then that you know that sometimes staying within someone's system of thought is also where what gets to tougher features like Mr. Death. Um, and and then, mm-hmm. you know, makes me think mm-hmm. about, you know, Ulrich Seidel and, and the kind of fictional side of um, more fictional side of buying into maybe more fringe <laughs> world worldviews. But but that's a whole, whole other discussion, mm-hmm. um, really. I mean, I think in Vernon, Florida, you know, it's like it's it, it really is just short and sweet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, okay. that's exactly yeah. it. And I think that that might actually be. I, I hate to be like too obvious in my in my transitions, but no, your transitions are great. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, we'll be dwelling on like one film and we'll never transition. Very important to transition. But, but it's funny because it comes to mind with with another movie that you you saw, and and actually also people living out of the way, um, and another filmmaker wanting to capture people as as they live, um, but. Couldn't be more different, really. And that is uh, La Pointe Court. Yes. First feature uh, from Agnes Varda. I am an I am I am in awe of La Pointe Court. I just I keep thinking, how is this how is this a debut film? I know, right? It's <laughs> yeah, it's like John Dielman in terms of how did yeah. you, you know, in, innovate, yeah. also like synthesize all of this. Do you want to talk about it a little first? Because you've probably seen it more than I've only seen it once. Oh. I mean, I'm coming to it very late. I mean, I had having seen all kinds of, you know, other Varda films. But yeah, yeah this was the first for me. But 
beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful. I, I agree. I, I haven't seen it in a while, but I, I'm going to watch it again since Criterion has put out this wonderful, comprehensive set of Agnes Varda movies. And the Front Court, of course, is in there. You watch something like that, you're like, where has this been? You know, why is this not where the textbooks start? Right. Yeah, it's, it's her first feature. Um, and yeah. she follows a couple um, at a seaside town, a fisherman's town. Uh, and the movie is kind of split between the couple working out their issues, uh, figuring out what the way forward is, is their way forward, and the villagers uh, and kind of candids from their lives. That's kind of the photographer side of, of Varda that, that really comes out in full force as well in the shorts that she does in the next you know five to, to seven years of street life in, mm. in Paris. Um, and just the compositions mm-hmm. in this, I don't, Again, it's just baffling how this is not has not been central. I mean, I think that's where Criterion does a, a good big thing when it says here are, are the complete works, yeah, because it is important, and and it will be yeah. right, and it will be. I think they ran an essay that said like how Agnes Varda invented or started the new wave, mm-hmm. which is kind of like you know a big slap and saying yes. I mean, what you said like how how does that how come the textbook. T- before it didn't start with this how how could it not but and i wanted to talk about it because it felt to me like it's the kind of film where it's a good example of how the documentary aspect and not in a straight sense of documentary because she's not shooting a documentary but how the kind of ethnographic documentary aspect of 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 a place and the location can elevate the Mm -hmm. film if you let it i mean you have the sense that like i I guess varda at that point was doing photography Mm -hmm. which is wonderful because i guess as a photographer she would have this keen sense for you know obviously faces and figures but also um landscape and location because so much of this film is the seaside and its landscape but also i mean you feel like she did a lot of location scouting and to kind of knowing these little stories because this village where the couple arrives is so full of life. And there are all these intrigues where, you know, the fishermen, there's some kind of an industry. You see these, um, you see the chimneys far in the background, mm-hmm. close to the water. And so because the chimneys are there now, the fishermen are forbidden to fish in some areas, but those are areas that render a lot of seafood and basically make their livelihood possible and so now you know of course they're fishing there but the inspectors are after them that's how the film opens you know and and the film actually that's what's wonderful the film doesn't even like open directly with a couple it comes with this whole opens with this whole vignette of how the inspector is you know is in this fisherman's village and you know the villagers don't know what to do about it because they're being fined and you know they have to hide what they fished out and then we lead into the fact that the husband is already there and he's waiting for his wife to arrive and she arrives and she's decided that they should separate but he's hoping that by the fact that she came to his, you know, to his native village, that she's going to kind of know the place, that her somehow absorbing the vibes of the place will help her understand the ways in, in which he is, in which he loves her. Because I guess she's more of an urban intellectual type and he's someone who doesn't talk about his emotions as well, mm. doesn't, isn't as eloquent. I, I don't know if that's fair to, yeah, but... Yeah. And this side by side, I mean, it's gorgeous. I mean, when I watched it, I thought how interesting it is that there's not necessarily, and I think you already touched on that, they're not trying, Varda isn't trying necessarily to integrate 
the couple into the village. It's actually a running joke that the villagers <laughs> keep saying, oh my God, this couple, all they do is like, why can't they, all they do is like walk around and just talk. And maybe if they didn't talk so much, they wouldn't be so miserable, <laughs> which is kind of like a funny dig at existentialism yeah. basically. Right. So there's no, I mean, there's no visual necessarily an attempt to like integrate them. And it's not that she actually gets to know this village life that well, but nevertheless, something about the place, something about realizing that there's more to life, mm -hmm. something like very earthy yeah. about being there helps them get over the crisis or get into another stage of the crisis. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. And it's, it's really amazing how uh, Varda, she basically, she tells their story, but she also is airing all the tensions in focusing on their story, you know, by the way she's mm. made the movie. Um, you know, she's, mm. she's not just going to give us, you know, two people kind of moping about, uh, being beautifully positioned in these really quite, you know, eye-catching yeah, yeah. compositions mm -hmm. of, of, of all the patterns. She loves all the patterning um, that happens if wood or netting or shadows mm -hmm. um but she's not it's not just that she she has this parallel track of people whose concerns that she's showing are, are much more focused on getting enough food getting enough money a child is dying have the doctor come you know and it's really again another kind of balancing act and it's funny to me that she you know, when she's doing that, she's anticipating a lot of criticism that would come um, in the 60s or, I mean, even just with Antonioni, let's say, you know, um, watching like a couple, you know, wondering what, you know, what they're doing. Da, 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 and, and you're just kind of like, what? <laughs> I mean, I love Antonioni. I'm just taking like the kind of devil's advocate of like. Right. That she's doing very deliberately. Yeah, she's doing that. Well, it, it's interesting, yeah, because, I mean, the way that they are shot is very stylized. And and I didn't even realize it. I mean, I, I guess I read in, in, in that Criterion essay that she was inspired by a Faulkner story, which is so interesting mm. because then I checked up on the story and it didn't seem like it was a direct inspiration. I mean, like, like she transplanted it directly. It felt more to me like these lovers are so tormented and it's so intense. It felt like a Margaret Duran novel yeah. or some kind of kind of obsessive but yeah there was something very stylized about them and I guess I read that like she didn't want them to act much I mean it almost sounds like there's some kind of like a Bressonian rejection of acting for these two professional actors mm -hmm. which is interesting because their stillness then makes the life around them pop out so much more i mean the vibrancy and the vivacity of this village is then so all so much more striking it's true yeah i mean it's yeah it's interesting to think that in some ways she's she's doing a little brisson while you know while brisson is just happening yeah i didn't have a chance to to read um about like her at that time, I mean, I guess Alan Resnick was, was, he was, he's the editor of the film, but he was also, she acknowledged him as a mentor at that point in her life. And it would be kind of interesting. I mean, I wanted, definitely made me want to go back, you know, to Alan Resnick's documentaries and kind of think of 
his own take. I watched br- briefly Van Gogh, mm-hmm. uh, which is a short of his from 1948. And, and that was kind of nice because what was interesting about that connection is that it had that same kind of talking about Van Gogh with this idea of um, the kind of elevation of the earthy village life, countryside life, which you see in Van Gogh's painting, juxtaposed to this kind of egoistic, egotistic life of the city, mm-hmm. which is kind of a connecting theme that I guess you also see in Lapointe, but yeah, no, definitely. I, I I remember working on an interview with Varda where she does talk about uh, you know what Rene brought to the table and kind of pushing each other um, and you know obviously a fruitful collaboration with his sensibility, but still her kind of driving it. Yeah, and then at that time doing the movies that he was doing, statues also die or Guernica, Guernica. Right. These kind of I mean, this is not what the word means then or now, I guess, but these kind of deconstructions of pieces of art, you can see where, where that editorial um, eye would, would be helpful in the interesting, you know, double track approach that Varda um, mm-hmm. is, is doing, I, which I think is, is her a, a, approach. I mean, I... No, absolutely. I am not in any way suggesting. I just, I'm just saying that I would be, I would like to know more uh, about their collaboration. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think you also see... I mean, her infinite curiosity, I mean, Varda always had that, yeah. you know, that she brought to city life, that she just brought to anything, to the to her latest projects, you yeah. know. Yeah, and, and yeah, and she's always, she was always, you know, battling that mainstream tendency of putting the spotlight on someone who essentially already has the spotlight, you know, uh, obviously, you know, with mm-hmm. faces, places, taking it to the streets, taking it to the, to the villages, more, you know. Right, taking it to the villages. Yeah. Well, she did. What a and what a magnificent result! <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess Renier. I mean, he was again by this kind of self-defined team of new wave. He was. I mean, I guess not technically part. You know, kind of more. I guess Reeve Gauche or something. So he's not. So maybe in that sense, they also in different ways being looking in a bit from different points uh, on the outside uh, in very different ways, obviously. But maybe that was also something mm. that helped bring them together. But the point court, I mean, it's just if if you ever wonder what happened to Italian neorealism, what was a next step? Did Breathless just come out of nowhere? You know, uh, right. it's, you know, this is where you I'd love to have like the actual like viewing journals of like the different new wave directors. It's like, did you never see the poor court? Yeah, no. So this one's a gift. <laughs> That's right. Definitely the highlight. So I think it's, it's so I think my 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 movies of this what I've seen divide into documentaries and then these remarkable marriages kind of unraveling or semi unraveling mm. with documentary elements. Yeah. Which is I guess also the last film the, that I was going to mention, oh, yeah. which was the Romina Paula's again once again, mm-hmm. which um, you know is also I mean. A couple and, you know, this young woman in her 30s who comes back. This is an Argentinian film um, that's now streaming on movie. And she comes back to her family home with her young son. And she's having marital problems in their relationship. Yeah, and this is this moment of transition, of indecision, which I think both films, I mean, La Poincourt is also, I mean, what's beautiful about La Poincourt is it's also this moment of there's some kind of transition being made or some kind of decisions are being made, but it's all kind of fluid, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, which, um, 
which in a way in our homes is where we are. I mean, it's interesting because I was I was reading this piece in the in the New York Times, which was talking about transitions and how there are many stages to it, and there are stages where you are kind of mourning mm. what you had. You know, if some if some kind of upheaval happens or semi upheaval, or even you need to transition somewhere in your life, you mourning what you have, which is in Lapuan Court so beautifully captured because the wife is very much at that point. I mean, she's mourning, I don't know, the sense that she used to feel more challenged, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, that she felt more loved or whatever it might be. And now they need to kind of renegotiate with how their how their marriage will you know what will happen next, which is also the the main drama of again once again. So Romina Paola, she's a writer, and I think most viewers will know her from the films of Matias Pineda and Maria Linas. Mm-hmm. Off the top of my head, I don't recall, but she may also be in La Flor. Yes, um, yeah, I think right? that's right, yeah. yeah. But she also, and it's interesting because kind of like in La Pointe, I mean, she brings this literary sensibility to the film. Here it's more obviously literary because you have a voiceover, so you have this woman who's speaking and she's kind of like clearly searching, you know, she's, she's investigating her family history because there are some albums and her family is from Germany. Um, but she's also investigating where she is as a mother, someone who is now in this different stage of always taking care of another life. I mean, it's quite, it's quite beautifully done. And I guess I thought of the documentary aspect because Romina Paola plays a, you know, a fictional version of herself. I mean, a woman called Romina, but it is her son in the film. It is her mother in the film. They are speaking German, which, you know, is, is the mother's language. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's this, this kind of fluidity and personhood and this idea of how you use the elements of your life to filter into this fiction, which in very different ways, but uh, it kind of connects to, yeah. I think, Lapuan Court. Yeah. Definitely. Which is interesting because I, I guess in, in both films, particularly with La Bonne Court and particularly with this film, right? I mean, I saw that some sites um, talk about, again, once again, as a documentary film and others talk about it as a fiction. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's interesting when we're trying to have these very neat divisions for films where the point is that these two things are meant to kind of feed into each other and be very indeterminate, you know? Yeah. And I mean, it's also interesting to think how, you know, th- that sort of conversation goes on in, in, in documentary and fiction in film, but it's, it's parallel to conversations that are going on in, in novels, you know, in an auto fiction. Sure. It's a, a lot of people are, are um, experimenting in, in, in that way. And it's, it seems that, when it gets foregrounded with a movie, it, it somehow seems to push the movie in, I don't know, to, to the, to the margin somehow, <laughs> you know, it's, mm. it's like if you, if you, if you admit it in a certain way or, or I don't know, it's, it's interesting how that, that, ha- that happens. To the margins, do you mean to the margins in terms of how it then functions within festivals or? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. A little bit. I'm, I'm generalizing here, but I mean. Sure. I, no, you know, I understand. To the extent that then it becomes harder to categorize the film and right. some festivals are still funny about, you know, how to separate the docs from exactly. everything else. Yeah. Right. Which, yeah. which I guess we would just say don't. <laughs> right? <laughs> I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I just... mean, because perhaps if we didn't, then that would, that would trickle down a little bit more than into viewers actually having access to these documentaries when then, when it, when it then, then it's time to streaming as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
It's true. Yeah. So maybe that's maybe that's like the overriding plea of today's podcast. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a, a totally different movie, but that's uh, you know, I definitely think of uh, what is it? Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. Um, oh yes. You know, just another movie. Sure. Where it's like, why? This is even a question I asked the filmmakers. You know, it's this movie about basically a bar on its closing night, um, except it's shot not in the actual bar that it's supposed to be depicting. But the people are actual people who go to bars, but they're not the same people who go to that bar. But, you know, it's it's all this stuff. It's right. kind of full of mirrors of different qualifications. And it's like, okay. But they're inside of a bar for the yes. purposes of the film. Yes. For hours and hours. Right. And they are regular bar goers and yes. so on and so on. Right. Yeah. And so, it's you know, it's just as you're saying with like, categories i asked them point blank it's like you know what was what would stop you from putting this submitting this in a different category taking a different category and you know the answer is that's not always not not always their decision necessarily you know it's not mm-hmm. it's a very interesting process whereby we we classify those things it's not to say that there aren't movies that are obviously i think you can draw some lines more clearly than others but maybe maybe it's not always helpful to be drawn lines sure so do you mean that in this case there's some kind of like a curatorial decision that's being made of Um, or maybe like a decision of what kind of expectations the audience may have i guess more of a category um curator decision i don't want to put i i yeah yeah no i understand i mean they they answered it in a very nuanced way uh, both diplomatic but also they were pretty open about it basically it was interesting because they were like yeah I mean, I, I think they would have been open to it being in a fiction category or just in a movie category rather than um, a documentary category. But I mean, it's good that you mention it because it's the kind of film that's, I mean, that was one of the best films I saw in Sundance. Yeah. Absolutely remarkable film. Then it went to Berlinale. It's gorgeous. I think it is streaming. It's the kind of film that you should just make yourself a drink and really <laughs> sit back on a Saturday evening or right? I mean, we have nowhere to go. We have nowhere to go. And here is this bar who, you know, is a composite bar of bars. But I mean, it's an eternal trip into, I don't know, into camaraderie, into mourning. I mean, Mm -hmm. I guess it is also about mourning the kind of local pub culture um, that was in many ways already disappearing in various parts. Yeah. Yeah. Now there's just, there's just nothing unless you sit at these weird tables they've set up in new york that are half in the street <laughs> oh, okay no we have yeah right um i was going to talk about another movie or two but i i feel like we've had a pretty full uh and rich conversation and i actually really like the idea of ending on the recommendation to just get thee to a bar <laughs> exactly at, at your own home but get thee to a bar with the rose brothers movie <laughs> yes yeah um, I'll save another time to talk about Contact, starring Jodie Foster, which I would love to talk about. But everyone should make their own contact with uh, the movies we talked about, which I'll be listing as usual when this is posted. Ella, thank you. This has been thank really you, Nick. great. Thank you so much. I'm sorry if I went on about about a couple of these. No, I mean it's so great to have a, a conversation about these films rather than you know. Yeah. Uh, is there anything coming up that you want to highlight? 
Um, no, I mean, that's not what I'm working on. I, I, I do want to say that I think it's a um, film at Lincoln Center that is going to be screening the two films by Portuguese filmmaker of the new Portuguese cinema, yes. including The Greenies, which is so we're not going to be able to talk about it, but it's so gorgeous. Mm -hmm. It's another film of like, where has this been? Yeah, no, that's great. Right? Yeah. I mean, this is 1960s, if you want to see again, where like, what the beauty of kind of neorealism pre-Antonioni brought to European cinema. I mean, absolutely remarkable. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm, I'm really glad you, you brought that up. And that's Grasshopper distributing that. Or, yeah. And I mean, I'm sure it's going to be a limited window of opportunity. And that that's a must-see, I think, in the history of, of cinema, yeah. the green years. So that's one recommendation. Okay. Well, take care and speak to you again soon, Ella. All right. Bye, Nick. <laughs>